Hey, Augmenters, we are speaking later on with Wendy Murphy, expert on mentoring and professor and associate dean at Babson College. We are thrilled to begin this conversation. And Julie, you know, what was some of your takeaways on mentoring and just like the deep dive that we got educated on drinking from the fire hose of Wendy's amazing experience? I know, I know. And I think we are kind of pseudo mentoring geeks at this point. Uh, I think we've kind of quasi, quasi, we sort of dipped our toes in long enough to be pretty hooked on this concept. So having an actual, I hate to use the word, but she's kind of a mentoring guru, uh, give us the actual facts was amazing. I felt like we had a 40 minute class and we didn't have to pay for a Babson tuition. The expert's expert. The expert's expert. And just to hear all the things I think we've been kind of tracing over time. I was happy that she found our eight principles to be, you know, very relevant to the mentoring journey, but really how relevant what today's experience of mentoring is versus, you know, 20 years ago when people had the same job and they stayed at the same place for a long time, kind of having your mentoring tribe, I think was really what I got out of it and how important that is. Yeah. Hearing some of the history provides such context on mentoring, just that the research was started in the 1970s, but really didn't start taking a hold for another 15 to 25 years later, did we start seeing actual effects in the workplace? I felt very lucky to be able to have this conversation with a trailblazer like Wendy, who's been doing this work for decades. And not just teaching students, but teaching companies and and teaching people all over the world. Also, big shout out to Babson, although I did not go to Babson. I've never actually even been to Babson, but uh, they do have really awesome uh, resources and great mentoring programs. I'm part of the Center for Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership, and just their mentoring programs are phenomenal. So really great to get to know Wendy. I know those programs are really based on Wendy's um, principles and her teaching. So I think without further ado, let's jump in and hear from an actual expert, not just us. What do you think? Let's do it. And we're, we were lucky too that this was our second conversation with Wendy as Wendy and us had like a, a quick initial chat to kind of get set. Basically, Wendy prepped us on how to do a mentoring podcast well, because she's so good at what she does. And yeah, I think you all are going to enjoy this conversation. Here we go. Well, Wendy, thank you so much. Um, we got so much out of our conversation last time. So we really appreciate you coming on to officially be on our Augmenters podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump in, we'd love for you to just give us a quick intro, a little bit about yourself. You are our first and only true mentoring expert, I believe, that we have had on the show. So um, we're very excited to hear more. Well, there are many of us out there, so I'm sure you will have more. Um, So I am a professor at Babson College, and I'm also the associate dean for the undergraduate school. Um, And so my work, my teaching is in the areas of organizational behavior, leadership, negotiation. My research is in the area of mentoring and developmental networks, identity, and the work-life interface. And so as part of my work, um, I've really explored positive connections between people, non-traditional mentoring relationships, informal mentoring relationships um, across several different studies. Um, So pretty much all of my work aligns in this area. 
I've also run mentoring programs and consulted with many companies about the structure of their programs and assessing their programs. So, Wendy, one reason I was so excited to to chat with you again was uh, we only really touched on it briefly. Our first conversation uh, was your your uh, when you were talking about the gig economy and talking about how these, as you said, like alternative kind of workforces creating these new and these new networks that weren't there really even 10 years ago. Uh, So I'd love to hear a little bit more, just where did you get that idea? Like, were you riding in the back of Ubers and Lyfts just chatting with people? Like I know Julie and I do. And you were like, who else do you talk to at work? You know? Well, so honestly, I talk about my work all the time with people because I'm just naturally curious. But one of the things that we know and has been going on for a while, actually, is that careers have been changing rather dramatically the past 20 or 30 years. I mean, we moved from a very traditional economy where many of us would join an organization and be there for a significant chunk of our career, sometimes our whole career, retire, gold watch, all that to a very boundaryless career model where people actually move and navigate between organizations across their career and build, build their careers through series of experiences. And the gig economy came along and fit that model almost perfectly. Um, this continued dissociation with the individual and the organizational identity as one. So organizations become vehicles for individual learning and contribution and growth. And when that is no longer a good fit, the individual moves on, the organization moves on. Um, So thinking through what does this mean for our career development? Well, now you're an individual and there's no longer an organization telling you this should be your next promotion. This should be your next step. It's now you as the individual, your responsibility to navigate and figure out that career Um, And so what does that mean? Well, traditionally, many of us learned had a lot of growth through a mentoring relationship. And in fact, that's where the research for mentoring came out of looking at careers and saying people who have a mentor are more successful. Well, if traditional mentors aren't going to be in place in the same organization for your career, how do you navigate that? And it, it became this idea of a developmental network that you need multiple mentors to help guide you through all of these potential career transitions. And in fact, mentors and relationships are what is stable rather than the organizational structure itself. My gosh, this is so blowing my mind. It's so interesting because um, going back over time, you know, I'm sure a lot of us, my father had actually started an organization, but he worked there his whole entire life until the very end. And Jimmy and I have both been entrepreneurs working in a variety of different places and doing a lot of different things over time. And I think that was one of the ways that we really connected was that we, you know, have had various mentors, but that we're always searching for more because we don't have sort of one organization that's been taking care of us all this time and to see how decentralized this is. And I love hearing as you're talking about this, that it's really about the relationships that people have. Right. And that's where we're finding our stability, right? It's in the network rather than in the organization itself. Now, some of us create our own organizations and that becomes a source of stability. But but really, many of us, um, our career in and of itself is the vehicle and where relationships are the stable part of that. So, uh, Wendy, I'm going to pretend like this was like really well thought out framework and that we first ask you about, you know, these different ways of approaching a career so we can then come back and be like, so uh, how did you be- get to become a career as an expert in mentoring based upon now what you know? Like, how, can you tell us a little bit more like where you first got these ideas 
around like organizational behavior and as, as part of your background to like excite you to be doing this on an everyday basis? Um, sure. So, so I was in, my goodness, we'll go way back. Um, I graduated college and it was a really great economy. <laughs> Lots of different opportunities. <laughs> um, oh, great economies. And- <laughs> they were so much fun. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. Like it was like, I had five job offers. Like it was just, uh, you know, um, and so I had ended up doing something um, in retail. I went into retail buying um, because it was sort of this analytical opportunity plus a really creative side, fun fashion. It was fun. Um, but I got a few years into it um, and then it was lots of great energy and opportunities. But I started to notice a lot of my friends didn't like their jobs um, and even people I worked with. And it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the content of the work. It was like this boredom and the people and um, thinking they were missing out on something um, and often the development that was happening uh, or not happening. Mm. Um, And so I became interested in sort of workplace and organizational um, behavior relationships. When I went to get my PhD, um, you know, upon reflection on my career, I was looking at who was promoted and how they were promoted and what sort of relationships they had built to get those opportunities. And I started to think about myself and I was, I I did well, but people did better than me. And I was like, and I started to notice some patterns and those were um, that they were building relationships with senior people in an informal way. And I didn't have that skill necessarily. And there's lots of reasons why people do or don't have those skills. Um, and so there, there are some real diversity challenges. One of the ways that you overcome those challenges are to find mentors outside of your organization um, or ha- who have similar identity to you. Um, now, that work has really evolved. And we've been thinking about, well, instead of finding the perfect mentor, finding that has a similar identi- identity, look for behaviors that you can emulate. Look for um, people who have similar deep level interests that you have. Um, really doing some deeper work to find that because it's almost impossible to get the perfect identification in a a mentoring relationship. But anyway, at the time, this was groundbreaking work um, in terms of developmental network uh, or personal board of advisors, as we more commonly call it now. Um, But 20 years ago, it was it was really a new idea. And so I, I did my dissertation around that. And actually, Kathy Cram was on my dissertation committee. And I still and I wrote with her for many years. She just retired. So is because of your academic relationship with Kathy, is that how you found the article at first? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, well, no, I read the article before I met Kathy, but I was at Boston College and she was a professor at Boston University. And the way that dissertation committees work, you have to have your chair in the university that you're working in, um, but you can have committee members from outside. And so Kathy joined my committee. The other person that was highly influential was Tim Hall. And Tim Hall, um, who also just recently retired, uh, was the groundbreaking work on protean careers. This idea that people in taking control of our own careers, we are both values driven um, and self-directed. So uh, those two ideas were were hugely influential for me personally. And And I will tell you, Kathy is like, the mother of mentoring. She wrote the book, Mentoring at Work, which was published in 1985. And her dissertation chair was Daniel Levinson, who wrote Seasons of a Man's Life, which found that those men at the time, it was in the 70s, who had mentors were more successful. And actually that's what exploded into the workplace in the late 70s and early 80s as everyone needs a mentor, 
oh, women are entering the workforce. Why don't we get them a mentor to help them succeed? So really, historically, that's sort of my academic lineage, if you want to, so to speak. And it also sounds like you all have been quite ahead of the curve. Um, I feel like what you're talking about here, even this uh, sort of idea of, of role modeling or finding your identification within the workplace, for sure, the last 10 years, five years, for sure, for sure, in the last one to two years. Um, so you, these are all these things that you've been thinking of, and now uh, a lot more organizations and companies are getting um, hip to it and are getting excited thinking about it, or at least trying to figure out how they're going to start figuring it out. Um, so I'm sure your work is is really valuable. Right. And so um, the most, I guess it was two years ago now. So Don Chandler, Chanland, she goes by now, um, and I wrote a piece calling um, called Propelling Diverse Leaders, a Developmental Network Approach, and really sort of solidifying these ideas. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because sometimes practice leads academic ideas and sometimes academic ideas push practice. And so it, it is a little bit iterative sometimes. Um, in that, in the way that things move forward. So what do you think about these kind of, you know, these kind of a emerging organizations, some of which are affiliated with nonprofits or affiliated with associations, but some are strictly business ideas to create these, you know, sort of broad mentoring concepts. Do you have any, any thoughts about, you know, sort of the explosion of these or, or, or what's working and what's not? Consulting firms have built businesses around mentoring, and that has existed for a lot longer than just the recent history. I think the idea that a network itself can be a business is the newer concept. Um, and so, so yes, I see a ton of these. Yes, there are mentoring circles and there's mentoring, um, traditional mentoring happening in them, as well as reverse mentoring happening in them and, and all kinds of formats. Um, when I think about a developmental network, um, you need to diversify sort of the, all the eggs in your basket when you think about developing yourself in your career. And so one of those areas is always professional associations and professional networks, um, because that is where you'll find information that people in your regular network might not have access to. So a big part of this is if everybody in your, in your career network, in your small professional network, knows one another, then they have access to the same information and resources as you do and as each other does. And so you don't find out anything new. That includes career opportunities. And if you're an entrepreneur, opportunities for funding, opportunities for new clients, customers, all of those things. And so professional networks have become an essential tool. And in fact, in some ways, they mirror professional associations that have been around for a really long time, right? The Association of Marketing Professionals, all those. Um, or in ac academia, the Academy of Management or the Academy of Marketing. Um, one of the acronyms that's become really, really popular in the past couple of years when we talk about careers is VUCA. And interestingly, that came out of the military. That is that, your, that careers today are more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And guess what? That's what entrepreneurs face. And so... Facts. Fact. Yeah. And, and, and so this, this wildly uncertain environment that, by the way, has just been amplified by the pandemic um, is something that all of us are coping with. And a, a really wise career strategy is this personal board of advisors, just like an entrepreneur would have a board of advisors for a business. You have one for your career. I love it. So uh, for, for tapping into acronyms uh, is pretty close to uh, my favorite recurring segment, Let's Get Frazy. 
So uh, compared to a whole bunch of, or, or talking about a whole bunch of people you've worked with, are there specific uh, sayings from, and most of these people probably have been mentors to you as well, but is there like a saying or two that have really resonated with you, like a phrase or almost like a mantra that when you're having like a tough day or like a relationship that might not feel like it's like completely jiving that you kind of come back to and say to yourself again? I'm trying to think like you're, you're thinking like, do I have a catchphrase or something? I actually don't. I wish I did. Now I'm going to go get one. Thanks to you, Jimmy. Um, (laughs) He's got a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things um, that has really emerged for me over the past 10 years is this community on positive organizational um, positive organizational scholarship and positive Mm. um, relationships at work. And there's this community out of the University of Michigan um, that's done a lot of, uh, that has formed and done a lot of research in this area and connected people who are doing similar research. So mentoring is a part of that community. Um, And one of the, one of the things we talk a lot about are high quality connections. So like HQC, I guess, or like work ties. Um, And that's because, um, there are a lot of positive outcomes of high quality connections. Um, and it, it's basically like you and I have positive regard for one another. We're mutually responsive to one another and that there's a sense of vitality. So I get energized when I talk to you. So um, this community that's been interested in studying high quality connections and furthering research in this positive area has really been exciting, interesting um, and helpful to me personally. Um, the, the whole switch into this positive viewpoint really, and I'm, I feel like I'm being a, my little professorial self here telling you um, that for the past hundred years, the field of psychology has focused on a deficit model of, of what's wrong with people. And we've had this shift and it's really been the past 15 years or so um, into saying, okay, we know it's wrong, <laughs> but what makes people really thrive? What is really right? about people um, that can help support people thriving. And that has felt really generative for both my research and for my engagement in the scholarship. Wendy, I do have another question. As we're talking about this um, together, and obviously you're working with Babson and certainly the networks that Jimmy and I are a part of, you know, we feel like we're very, very lucky. You know, we are uh, really privileged. We both went to great, well, we both went to the same grade school, Tufts across across the way. Um, and so we went to great schools. You know, we have a lot of support of our friends and family. And we really see Augmenters as creating a rising tide around mentoring. So we'd love just even all these conversations and getting people thinking about it. How do we bring more people along? How, what are ways that uh, maybe you've seen that have been successful in bringing people who maybe aren't necessarily uh, always with folks who are thinking about mentoring as much? How are there ways you can kind of create um, create more of a rising tide for mentoring? Well, really, when you think about it, it has to do with people having a sort of a developmental approach in their careers and in their lives for those around them. Um, because the word mentoring can be really charged for people. It can mean a lot of responsibility. And so even in the in a majority of the research that's been done, so both informal and formal mentoring are good. They both help. Informal relationships help that much more. And that's probably because there's some sort of identification underlying that relationship. It's naturally occurring. And so um, for people who participate in formal programs, my advice is always learn how to be a good mentor or learn how to be a good mentee. Definitely do it. And then take those skills and use them informally in your life um, as a mentor and a mentee, because we are both at many times in our careers. Um, 
there's a lot of recognition that mentoring is essential and helpful for making um, change and inroads at multiple life stages. So I think it really is the movement has to be at multiple levels and around multiple stages. So what you and Jimmy are going to be working towards, Julie, is thinking about, well, what age group, what career stage are we looking to really help um, and move forward? Because there's people doing work at every stage and at every level. Um, in fact, um, Kathy and Tim with their colleague Polly Parker and one other co-author um, have just published a book on retirement and the retirement transition. And they're talking about how you need peer mentors to help you make the transition because Kathy, as she was retiring, found that, oh, my developmental network for the workplace is no longer helpful as I try to figure out, do I want to spend my time playing bridge? What do I <laughs> exactly. want to do? Who's my right? modern mentor? Right? I need a modern mentor. <laughs> and we're finding people, you know, have these, um, have different types of career forms after they retire um, and and might not be fully retired, might do a variety of different things, uh, paid and unpaid, um, depending on their energy levels and how they want to construct their life and construct their identity. Uh, so so really, it's at every life stage that building these relationships makes a difference. So yeah. one, one theme you've kept talking about is informal and in that there can be formal mentoring and you know this kind of informal are there a couple like very basic like tactics or ways of just going about your life that helps these informal relationships occur? Because, you know, when I hear a formal relationship, I almost like want to back away and like go to sleep. You know, it sounds kind of boring, weird, but an informal one, I don't even know, like, how do I start that? You know, do I like hit somebody with a towel? You know, like, like where, what, what, what really is that relationship or like, how do you start it? No, so I, I think you're right in that the formal, so formal mentoring is kind of like meeting someone and being saying, will you be my mentor? It is so awkward. And it's kind of like proposing marriage on the first date. It's just not how relationships naturally evolve. Um, and so if you have this in mind, this high quality connections, um, it it does change your framing and how you approach people more generally in your life. Um, and you ask good questions. Um, and you might spend a tiny bit more time, not enough, but not enough to be significant, but enough to get to know the person behind the counter, for example, um, and and start to check in. And then that becomes a tie, like a tie and begins to change your your day when sociologists do work in um, in cities, in big cities. That's how people form community in big cities is they start to get to know the people in their immediate neighborhood. So they don't feel overwhelmed by the huge vastness uh, and insignificance of one person in this huge array of people, but they actually have those connections. Um, that's a sort of thinking of high quality connections. And that's how you start to um, introduce yourself, show genuine interest um, and have a sense of mutuality. One of the things that young people, you're talking first and second job, often struggle with is I, what do I have to offer someone who's more senior to me? Um, and, and one of the things you do have to offer is asking good questions and um, sharing parts about yourself that are interesting, right? Um, so, so it's starting to build those skills and being intentional about it and saying, okay, uh, I'm in a new workplace. How do I get to know um, a few people so that I can start to build my network um, in that transition? One of my colleagues, Keith Rolog, studies um, how to be new. And one of the most important things 
you can do is actually find someone who's a buddy that you can ask those dumb questions to. Um, but the faster you build relationships, literally it sh it's shown the faster you build relationships, the more successful you are um, quickly and on ramping your performance. And as um, an entrepreneur, um, you know, Babson, we teach, this is what we teach, right? We, we teach, who are you? Who do you know? What is your context? Um, and so the, who do you know piece becomes essential for building your business and actually getting feedback on your ideas and getting rapid feedback so that you fail quickly, but intelligently, um, and prototype and change and pivot as needed because you have the relationships to get the feedback quickly. That is so key. And another thing Jimmy and I have been talking about, I'm sure you're thinking about this all the time, Wendy, is I'm, I happen to run a virtual organization. I always have, but now everybody is having their digital HQ. So the challenge of building relationships are, are any tips or any thoughts about, you know, folks coming into these digital organizations? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, so what's missing in a digital meeting format is the transition into the conference room and out of the conference room and the water cooler chat and the hallway informal. interactions, the informal interactions. And so what I've been talking to, man to managers and leaders about lately in the past year and a half is how do you recreate that in a Zoom call? Well, you build in the first five minutes as transition time or 10 minutes as transition time. So you can actually ask people, how are you doing today? Like, what's going on? Do you have plans for the weekend? Like, just to get that sense of rapport and human connection. Otherwise, we're completely task oriented and task oriented works for some people, but does not work for all and does not usually foster good connection. And, and has that been then kind of showing that's that the focus on task orientation due to the lack of bumping into people increases burnout because you really aren't ever taking your foot off the gas all day. You're just running straight for eight or 14 hours. Yeah, and it's increased loneliness, right? So we know that there's a, a depression crisis right now in the United States. Um, and part of that has been isolation. And I mean, it's not because we're not having meetings online and seeing people online. It's just feeling isolated. Well, I like the idea of the first five minutes not being like, can you hear me? Well, and it's, I also, okay. it's okay if it is. Yeah. Like, it's okay if a few people are saying, can you hear me? And you're conducting a side conversation. You're like, no, we can't hear you yet. And you can, so, I mean, it's okay if you make that transition time also time to connect. Yeah. Well, Wendy, you're making me feel better because I thought you were going to say, now that everybody's going digital, it's time to zag. And Julie's going to start making me come to the office and get like <laughs> rental space in Brooklyn or something. I'll be chained to a chair. So is really, yeah. really hard to replicate. And especially in the mentoring relationships. I mean, I know a lot of these mentoring programs have gone online and yeah, that connection, it's, it's, it's possible, but it's definitely much more challenging. Do you know what else actually helps? Uh, again, the phone once in a while. So believe it or not, um, there's video fatigue because we end up watching ourselves. There's all kinds of <laughs> social dynamics when you're seeing yourself on the screen. Um, and when you're on virtually, whereas when you take a phone call, try this the next time you have a meeting, do it as a phone call and see what you do. I almost guarantee that you walk around or you're looking at something else um, and you're more attentive to the meeting itself because you're you're not watching the video at all. You mean ride a stationary bike or do yoga? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Or you shovel. Can do anything. You could do it, but it's better for your body to be moving anyway. Um, but, you know, good old fashioned conference calls have sort of lost their appeal, but they're actually really effective. And I think especially for the mentoring, too, because you really want to be focused on what people are saying and really concentrating on that. 
Yeah, so it's funny you say that, Julie, because one of the early studies I did on e-mentoring, we found that um, the support and the connection that people felt was higher if they had one face-to-face meeting or one phone call. Like the rest could be completely virtual, could even be all via email. But if they had just one where they could hear one another. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool that you did e-mentoring research a while ago that you were so Yeah, I think that study was 2011. Wow. So, so Wendy, I think I'd be remiss to ask because I know our listeners have given us this feedback of, you know, an actual, like an anecdote. You know, is there an informal relationship uh, that you started that led to mentoring? Is there one that you can remember that really had an effect on you? And like, how did the first interactions occur? So I'm going to talk about um, Bala Ayer, who's, um, he's a, he was a, Full professor. I was an assistant professor my first semester at Babson. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had this, we had this course at the time that was integrated um, uh, IT, information systems technology and organizational behavior. It was looking at the, the places where those intersected at the MBA program level. Um, and my co-teacher six weeks into the course passed away. Oh my. And Bala stepped in as the co-teacher. Um, and he was obviously very, very senior to me. It's like literally my first semester at Babson. Um, and in facilitating that course and getting students through obviously a traumatic experience as well, um, he became, um, a, very quickly became a, an informal mentor to me in my early career at Babson. And so um, even though he was in a very different area, he was in IT, he was a really good researcher. And um, he helped me conceptualize how to block time appropriately. There's, there's things in early career in academia that you try different strategies and then it almost sometimes is helpful to have someone say, oh no, you can say no to these things in this institution. And he was that person for me um, beyond my chair and all the other people I had advising me, me, someone in a different area that was able to have that sort of objective perspective. Um, on the work I was doing and how I was doing it. Um, so he was really, really helpful. Um, and he's actually the person that pushed me into a leadership role here. Um, unfortunately, he also passed away unexpectedly right before the pandemic, pretty much. Um, but but that was an incredibly impactful, informal, completely informal mentoring relationship that occurred over time. Um, not the least of which is that it was a very quick and intense experience together. So we became close very, very fast. That's really, that's really great. And these are the kind of things I think you look back on your career. And I, I know for me, I always remember things I did or projects I had, but it's definitely the people that I did it with and how I felt with them, whether it was my team members or clients or what have you, that you really value the most. Right. And I think what was really particularly helpful for me in my research in mentoring was having somebody really way outside of my field who saw potential in uh, in the e-mentoring piece. And I actually ended up doing doing some work with him because he was on the IT side of it. Um, and we taught, we ended up, we had an HBR article on virtual, virtual mentoring, right? Um, and so an unexpected, completely unexpected collaboration with someone in a different field, wildly different field, IT. Um, and just the opportunities that came out of that were just really delightful for me. 
Um, and I think he he had so many positive things that came out of it for him too. And and I know this because I you know I've heard it all now from people um, since he passed. But um, but those informal relationships, I it's easy for me to advocate for find someone outside of your norm, outside of your domain, who you connect with. Wow. Uh, that is a, that is a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that relationship. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, I'm curious also about uh, something that others could potentially read or watch like some kind of material beyond uh, something specific to mentoring or relationships. Cause you've referenced so many fantastic uh, works uh, in, in our chat. Uh, but is there like, you know, like even like a, a random book or something that just within the story of fiction tells of a mentoring relationship or something that kind of struck you? Or, you know, is, is there something that you like to give to your students uh, to, to read before or after class, anything like that? Uh, in terms of like great mentoring stories, um, one of my colleagues, and I'm going to forget the author's name off the top of my head, but the name of the book is Power Mentoring. And the whole premise of that book, oh, it's Susan Murphy and Ellen Ensher. Um, the whole premise of the book are um, incredible stories of mentoring. Uh, and it's a lot of people at the top of their industries um, and sort of celebrities and people you would know. And it talks about their mentoring relationships, like Oprah is featured in the book. And so the, the first time mentoring appeared in the literature was, you know, in Greek mythology. Um, so you can find sort of these stories. It, it really came back as a word um, in Francis Fenelon's work in the 17th, 18th century, um, and then became part of our lexicon really after Daniel Levinson reintroduced it in the 70s. So you see these sort of trajectories of where mentoring starts to get mentioned and become more and more popular um, as a concept. But certainly you can you can find stories of mentoring across history. I mean, it, when you're, it, once this is in your head, you'll notice it everywhere. So you go to Hamilton and you watch how George Washington mentored Hamilton uh, in his career. Like you, you start noticing it in almost every movie book story that you read of, of success is at some point, someone does something to help the protagonist along. And that's your informal mentoring. Actually, one of our principles is around search, and we used Sherlock Holmes as kind of our, you know, guide. And Sherlock Holmes was born out of a mentoring relationship. That whole, that's exactly from the beginning. That's how it all came to be. Um, was was through his mentor. Yeah, uh, the the author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, pr primary professor was his mentor, and Sherlock was kind of modeled after Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's teacher. Actually, I love that. Which is a uh, Great. Well, and, and Wendy, you've now given me reason to tell Julie to somehow bump into Linwell Miranda on the street in New York <laughs> and ask to begin an informal mentoring relationship. <laughs> I feel uh, he that, would not be very impressed with me. <laughs> uh, well, Wendy, I only have one, I only have one more question, uh, and um, my, my question was going to be on like words, and like I love that you just brought up mentor from Greek mythology and Odysseus because. That, that was totally out of my mind. I totally forgot about it. But as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that <laughs> rings a bell. What might be like the next word? Like over the next few years, what do you think we're going to be hearing about? Like, is it going to be like avoiding the word burnout? Is it going to be, you know, like recreating like digital, you know, uh, informal interactions? Like what do you think will be a key word that's going to keep coming up over the next few years? 
So I think the movement um, that Ariana Huntington Huffington started around thriving, and it, I mean that that had came came out of POS, the Positive Organizational Scholarship, and she really popularized it um, uh, with her her ideas around you know time and management and um, rest, um, the idea of well being as a focus. So my colleague Rob Cross is his work is just starting to break the surface on the well being issues. I think that's going to be really critical. Um, because of the mental health crisis we're facing at all levels, um, I just think that's going to be such a natural focus over the next couple of years. Because so when you th look at the trajectory, networks was really popular around the turn of the century. I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> it was. It was, right? Um, and so now, like, how much, how far, far we have move that concept like that's how we actually got to the gig economy even being possible was because of networks and social media and social networks connecting us to find resources information people um and and so i i, I think we're going to be flipping it on its head we went from this really instrumental focus on networks now we're going to be looking at more of a psychosocial impact of networks on the connection itself on the social and emotional health and well-being. Yeah, 100%. Wendy, thank you so, so much. I feel like I can feel my brain on fire and I'm sure Jimmy's is too. And I'm sure you just brought so much to uh, our knowledge, our conversation. And thank you so much for your work. Um, it's really it's inspiring. And I'm so excited to dive into some of the resources that you shared with us and we'll definitely uh, share them in the show notes. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing all that comes out of Babson in the next uh, five to 10 years around this topic. We'll definitely be following along. Well, Julie, I like how you gave Wendy the challenge to figure out mentoring within the next five, maybe 10 years. But honestly, if anybody can do it, I think that we are in good hands with Wendy and all of the research that she's cultivating at Babson. I know, I know. And I hope, thank you, Wendy, for figuring this all out in the next five to 10 years based on my uh, my suggestion. But honestly, it, everything is evolving so quickly, Jimmy. Like even think about five years ago and certainly like even 10 years ago, how our connection, the last two years of Digital HQ, you know, just, just the shift and change of everybody uh, coming into the workforce, people leaving the workforce, people taking all different kinds of roles in the workforce. I think this is just a momentous moment um, where again, those relationships versus the organization are really, really critical. A momentous mentoring moment coming our way. <laughs> I especially thought it was prescient about, you know, networks from the turn of the century are so different. I mean, we're talking 2002 to now. I mean, 2002, not to date myself, but oh, no. I was I was a freshman in college or a senior in high school. You know, I was trying to hit jump shots for a state championship, you know, not like thinking about mentoring. I didn't even like consider it. But, you know, and those networks were still very much physical. We've now moved into a generation of digital networks. But Wendy's point about psychosocial impacts based on networks is clearly front and center these days. And combining that with this shift away from that deficit model of thinking about where you are lacking as, as, a, as opposed to now thinking about positive reinforcement models about where to continue to either see, hey, here's an opportunity for growth as, as opposed to this is something where I am not strong enough. 
I found that to be very empowering and something that we can you know, all move towards, feel more positive about growth. Yeah. And it, and it really impacts who you choose in your mentoring relationships. I think previously you might have thought like, for example, um, I'm not going to talk about where I was in 2002, but uh, I would say there's certain, you know, finance and there's certain things that I really struggle with. And instead of maybe finding more mentors to teach me how to do finance, just having a really good accountant and a good top line view is good enough and really working with mentors who can help on leadership or on sales or marketing or you know the kind of areas that that i want to continue to grow in um so i think for all of our listeners that's a great way to think about it how do you get instead of getting mentors to kind of fill in your needs potentially there's some experts and and then you can really focus on what you're great at and help you get better i love that i also love can we talk quickly about well-being i feel like that's such a like catchphrase and everybody's talking so much about it but i love how she brought that connection between mentoring and relationships and well-being, and that that's really where we're going to see organizations and people really prioritizing as we already are, which we need to. I think it's just going to happen more and more. Happier people are people that have strong personal relationships and connections. You know, I still quote the mythical study that may or may not be from Harvard Business School about you know the happiest people say hi to a higher percentage of people on their blocks than people who don't say hello to folks that are their neighbors. And living in Brooklyn, I have to say, you have to be careful because people do think you look crazy if you say hi, but that is 100% true. I have, my, I have my folks that do say hi and we always say hi to each other and then otherwise we just try to look cool. But I love that, it's, it's the connections. Well, the beauty of it, you don't actually need them to say hello back. You just need to say hi. It's honestly just like the gift of giving is the positive reinforcement. And speaking about Brooklyn neighbors, you haven't had a whole lot of time, but given you one of your strengths, positives here, is uh, creating new uh, uh, relationships. Uh, have you been able to bump into our uh, future friend, Linwell Miranda, yet? <laughs> I've been looking. I've been around. But, you know, we're, we're just wrapping up this pandemic here. I know he's been busy, but um, I have my line all ready for him when I when I catch him. I'm not going to tell you because I don't want I don't want to spoil it for him when it when I drop it. Have when you I started to, to triangulate between coffee shop that he frequents and restaurant and you know theater district. Well, he, honestly, he lives in Washington Heights, which I got to tell you the truth is just about as far as you know. It's like getting to Baltimore, basically between here and there. But I do know he does hang out in Brooklyn, and I do know that he hangs out in Manhattan as well. So I'm keeping my eyes peeled. Um, but yeah, I. I I'm excited about a couple things. I'm excited to dig into these great resources Wendy gave us. She gave us like basically the syllabus for a whole class on mentoring. So we'll have them in the show notes. We're going to jump totally. into it. And I mean, now that we know that Hamilton was mentored by George Washington, you know, and if we can only be so lucky to be mentored by Wendy, that then begs the question for, you know, the opposite, the antithesis of what you might want in a relationship. Who was the mentor for Aaron Burr? infamous Aaron Burr. Jimmy, I'm going to give that to you as a homework assignment. You let <laughs> us know next time, okay? Okay. Yeah, we, 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 we will leave the audience with uh, this cliffhanger. Uh, put, uh, put it in the comments. Who, who was the mentor to Aaron Burr? And it wasn't somebody who made peanut butter, if you remember a, fast, uh, a classic commercial. Back in All the right. Day. All right, Jimmy, I, I can't wait to find out the answer to this. And yeah, so thanks everybody for listening. So please visit our website for any more interactive content at augmenters.us. Please like, subscribe, and most importantly, share our podcast with someone you care about. Feel free to drop us a line, any questions or suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us. 
or find us on your favorite social media at Augmenters HQ. If you want to help Julie and Jimmy in our mentoring journey, then please subscribe because we all should ask for help. Thank you to our producers, Erlen Cato and Sean Omendam for all your help.